Listener Production. Hi, Sasha Barbagat with you. Welcome to today's briefing. Drugs and music festivals are in the news again. Earlier this month, nine people were hospitalised with hypothermia, that is extreme overheating, after taking MDMA in the sweltering heat at Hard Mission Festival. In today's briefing, host Bensian Siebert takes a deep dive on what works and what doesn't work in terms of drug policy at festivals. The young people going to festivals, when they see a lineup of sniffer dogs, are as likely to neck all their pills at the same time, making it far more likely for them to overdose. That's Bensian's interview in the second half of The Briefing. In the meantime, Katrina Blowers is here for the headlines. It's Friday, January 19. Hey, hey, happy Friday, everyone. Well, an independent review will be launched into the UN's Agency for Palestinian Refugee Operations in Gaza following a meeting with Penny Wong. The head of the agency, Philippe Lazzarini, has met with the foreign minister after Australia pledged an additional $6 million in funding to their work. So this review is in response to allegations, including from the IDF, that Hamas has been exploiting UN resources for military purposes during the 100 days of conflict in Gaza. Now, the agency strongly rejects those allegations. They've labelled them a smear campaign, but they've told Wong that they're going to do this review nonetheless. And briefly, staying with the conflict in Gaza, Europe's parliament has voted in favour of a permanent ceasefire, but only on the condition that all Israeli hostages held in the territory are released and that Hamas is dismantled, Sasha. Mm, which seems like a, a you know, a strange resolution to reach, given that uh, the whole, you know, Israel's mission is to destroy Hamas through its military actions. So the idea of a ceasefire on those conditions seems bizarre to me. Uh, there have also been reports of talks progressing for an imminent month-long pause in fighting, not a ceasefire. This is according to a senior but so far unnamed Arab official. Hamas is apparently refusing to that unless the deal includes a permanent ceasefire, which Israeli officials are unwilling to agree to. And of course, Benjamin Netanyahu has once again vowed to press ahead with Israel's offensive until it achieves a decisive victory over Hamas, in Netanyahu's own words. And he said these comments during a nationally broadcast news conference uh, overnight. So yeah, Israel's position still seems pretty cut and clear. It doesn't look like they're going to budge. Yeah, and we've also heard from the leader of the Houthis, who has spoken publicly for the first time since the US and UK launched strikes. So he's given an hour-long address, and he's saying that the Houthis are going to continue attacks on ships in the Red Sea and that foreign strikes don't scare them. He's also urged the Arab world to continue a mass boycott on Israeli goods. So, yeah, despite that reclassification uh, of the Houthis as a terrorist organisation, that doesn't seem to have uh, held a huge amount of weight. In the US, the Department of Justice has handed down its report into the Uvalde, Texas school shootings, finding there were cascading failures. The 600-page report into the shooting that saw 19 children and two teachers lose their lives identifies problems from failed communication and leadership to inadequate technology and training. And it also notes police officials who responded to the shooting, quote, demonstrated no urgency in setting up a command post and they failed to treat the killings as an active shooter situation. 
Yeah, so despite nearly 400 police arriving within three minutes of the shooter getting to the school, it took them over an hour to go inside the classroom where the massacre took place. Police did initially run towards the classroom, but they were hit by shrapnel and then they retreated to take cover. The report addresses this saying, quote, an active shooter with access to victims should never be considered and treated as a barricaded subject. That word never is emphasised in italics. Attached team led by Border Patrol eventually went into the classroom to take down the gunman. Uh, Sasha, this whole devastating situation has ended up with five officers losing their jobs, including two Department of Public Safety officers and the on-site commander. Yeah, and oh God, this story, I, st- I just still remember watching this unfold when it happened. It was truly awful. And the footage that came out afterwards of police kind of standing around outside the school. not it, it seemed clear that they didn't know what to do, which highlights what the report has exposed, which is a lack of training. Uh, and the delayed response went completely against active shooter training, which emphasises confronting the gunman. Uh, and that's a standard that was established after the Columbine High Massacre, uh, which found that waiting to act in these situations costs lives. And it's worth noting as well, you know, we talk about uh, US gun laws a fair bit and the fact that this was the second worst primary school shooting and the fact that 19 kids died and two teachers died as well and it's still not the worst is just uh, the mind boggles. Yeah, but I mean, I guess we can talk about police responses to this um, ad nauseum, but if we don't address gun control or the US doesn't address gun control, uh, arguably this is going to keep on happening. Let's move to the Oz Open now. And there's been disappointment for the Aussies at Melbourne Park with Isla Tomjanovic and Tanasi Kokonakis both crashing out in the second round. Tomjanovic pushed Yelena Ostapenko to a deciding set in what was an unpredictable encounter, but it just wasn't enough, unfortunately. Uh, she followed Kokonakis out the door. He crashed out earlier in the day. And that leaves just two Aussies standing. We've got Storm Hunter and Alex Demonor. Now, his is the big match everyone will be watching. That's tonight at John Kane Arena against Flavio Caboli. Now, the Italian is 100 on the ATP's rankings compared to the Demons' 10th spot. So, fingers crossed we've got a good show down there and uh, Alex Demonor comes out the winner. Are you a tennis head, Sasha? Have you been staying up watching this or are you just going to watch it now that we're getting to the pointy end? (laughs) Honestly, I lived in Melbourne for three plus years and uh, you really do get swept up in the Oz Open madness when you live down there. Um, I chuck it on every now and then. I'm not a huge tennis head, but I'm an Aussie. I love seeing Aussies do well at sport. I'm a cliche. So go the demon. And yesterday we brought you news of King Charles's prostate. I promise we are not going to talk about that again, but what we are going to talk about is some comments about sex uh, made by the Pope. In an address to his weekly general audience at the Vatican, Pope Francis has declared sexual pleasure is a gift from God and should be disciplined with patience, whatever that means. He's also used the sermon, which is part of a series on vices and virtues, so we can expect more of this, uh, to warn against pornography, saying that it brings satisfaction without relationship and it could lead to addiction, which is true. I think we've got it. Yeah. After after King Charles yesterday, this felt a lot to include for our poor listeners. But yes, the Pope, <laughs> hey, he's gone on the record and said this and we're just reporting on it. So yeah, the Pope, uh, I don't know why they feel the need to make these comments about 
sex, but I suppose, you know, Catholics who are devout Catholics really do you know, lay a lot in store by his words and, and what the doctrine is and what the current teachings are. So I, I suppose it'll be helpful for some people and good for them. So, yeah. Hey, before we get to today's deep dive, we did want to shout out some of our listeners who have reached out to us or commented on our social media post from this week. And we can't ignore the fact that we received so many comments uh, and messages in support of Antoinette, our colleague and co-host and friend. And that was following our chat with former executive director of Human Rights Watch, Kenneth Roth, which uh, we popped up yesterday. If you haven't had a chance to listen yet, go do it. It's a a really good episode. Um, At and Justin, and reached out to acknowledge how difficult it must have been for Antoinette over the last couple of weeks. And at Dorsaz said, this is why I listen to the briefing every day before work. It's unbiased, presents facts and presents both sides of everything. Thank you so much for that comment. That means a lot. Yeah. And our listener, Sasha, messaged us expressing her support for Antoinette as well. So did Elizabeth, who said it was great to hear from Antoinette herself this week to find out how she was going. I know um, Antoinette just loved getting all your messages of support as well. It's been a very tricky time for her. Thank you again to all of our listeners who tune in every day. We love hearing from you, not just on the big stories like this, but on anything. Um, even if you've got a suggestion for a briefing topic that you'd love us to dive into, you can just DM us. The best place is probably on Instagram. You can just search for the briefing, give us a follow and send us a message. Definitely. We love to hear from everyone. Thank you, Katrina. Have a fabulous weekend. Uh, Next up, we are deep diving with Bensian into the world of what works and what doesn't work when it comes to drug harm minimisation. There's nothing quite like the summer music festival season in Australia. But with festival season comes the almost inevitable stories of drug-related injuries, overdoses and, sadly, deaths. Earlier this month, nine people were hospitalised with hypothermia, extreme overheating, after taking MDMA in the sweltering heat at Hard Mission Festival in Melbourne. Last Friday, a woman was taken to hospital in critical condition after a suspected overdose at Juicy Fest, also in Melbourne. There's this sense of tragic inevitability about these cases. But are they inevitable, really? Can we ever stop drug overdoses at Australian music festivals? Bensian Siebert has spoken with Dr David Caldicott to talk us through the scientific evidence for what works and what doesn't. Dr Caldicott is an emergency department consultant and an internationally recognised expert on drug harm minimisation. Thanks so much for joining us, David. First off, tell us... What is the evidence for why people overdose in music festivals? Well, there's a bunch of different reasons. I think one of the biggest ones is that very few people using drugs at festivals have ever had an adult conversation with somebody about drug consumption and are mostly relying on the sort of messages that they've got in school about just not using drugs, which is fantastic if you're at school. But there's no nuance for them to modify their behavior as they choose to ignore that message. Uh, More specifically, I would say that there are a wide variety of uh, different substances of different concentrations and different purities. There's no consistency. And finally, we are um, increasingly finding ourselves in a warmer climate, an environment in which these drugs don't play well at all. What do we know about what works 
to stop people from overdosing at music festivals? Well, I think in general, what works anywhere is the decision that we're going to do what it takes to stop people being harmed. I think that's a, a societal decision. If you want to chase down um, the sort of magical thinking of we're going to make Australia drug free, well, that's what we've been doing, really. Um, and it, it doesn't work. Um, and that's you know, evident by the results we keep on seeing in these festivals. But what you do need to do is you need to decide, okay, we're going to move from that approach to one where uh, ensuring that young people are not being harmed is paramount. And to do that, you kind of have to accept the reality that young people, regardless of what you say to them, are probably going to use some drugs at some stage. It's kind of like accepting the fact that young people are probably going to dabble with sex at some stage. That's just what young people do. And as soon as you move the, the narrative towards the idea of reducing harm rather than reducing use, then you open up a, a whole bunch of options. So largely providing young people with information that's non-judgmental about drugs and drug use tends to work pretty well in changing young people's behavior to behavior that makes them far less likely to overdose. There was a series of overdoses in Melbourne at a festival recently, and obviously this is something that happens relatively frequently. Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen said pretty soon after those uh, overdoses that what her government would be doing is increasing the number of sniffer dogs at music festivals. And she also said that if you don't want to be hospitalised, don't take drugs at music festivals. What's your response to those messages? Uh, look, you know, if you're going to repeat the same policy and expect changes, um, you're going to get the, the same results as you had before. So, we now know uh, quite clearly uh, people in Victoria, there's a particular researcher called Peter Mallon who's done some great work on sniffer dogs. We, we know for a fact that A, they don't work, B, that they might uh, actually increase the risk. And perhaps what a lot of your listeners don't realise is that were you to take, for example, the budget for sniffer dogs for New South Wales alone for a year, you'd be able to uh, run a pill testing service for all of Australia with a bit of loose change to spare and far more efficient outcomes. Why is it that they don't work as a deterrent and also you mentioned that they can actually increase harm? Well, poor old canines um, have something of a problem identifying the vast array of drugs that might be found in a music festival. So we find that they're not particularly accurate. The young people going to festivals, when they see a lineup of sniffer dogs, are as likely to neck all their pills at the same time, making it far more likely for them to overdose than were the sniffer dogs not even there in the first place. Mm. Um, I think the other thing that it goes into the morality of it is that the passive alert dogs or sniffer dogs then go on to prompt a, uh, a strip search which frankly I find immoral outside the context of, say, counter-terrorism policing. Uh, I think strip-searching minors uh, in a festival environment is one of the crudest, most obtuse uses of police powers. There is a concept in policing 
called uh, the Pelian Principles, and that involves uh, or refers to the fact that the best sort of policing is the sort of policing that's provided or delivered with the consent of people, mm. uh, with, of the population. And this sort of approach is clearly not one that many parents, for example, would want applied to their kids. And so when there is a pill testing or a drug testing facility at one of these festivals, what happens and how does that stop or help stop overdoses? First of all, you've got to appreciate that, you know, the the people for whom it works best are the people who use the service. So if somebody isn't having their drugs checked, they'll have less of an outcome uh, than if they directly use the service. But generally speaking, people who come to a festival... Uh, will pitch up to um, a, a pill testing service like our own. We, we've designed an Australian-based uh, or type of pill testing service for that Australian environment. So it's a medically supervised process. It's co-located uh, with the medical tents. So there's no law enforcement around. They understand that we're providing a medical service. And the secret source of pill testing, a lot of people seem to think that it's to do with the analysis. It's not. It's to do with the the peer workers who can sit down and chat with young people um, and have those conversations that makes them change their mind. Not necessarily. People, Our opponents seem to think that the only useful outcome, uh, of course, is for people to bin their drugs. From a medical perspective, the useful outcome for us is for people to alter how they're going to use their drugs in such a way that it doesn't render them unwell and it doesn't become a burden on the healthcare system. And that's something that we can do for just about everybody. Is it a achievable goal for Australia to stop all drug overdoses at music festivals? Oh, I'd be very surprised if we could. Well, I mean, it's about, probably about as achievable as stopping all drug use at music festivals. Young people are notorious for doing foolish things, and that's just part of growing up. But what we can do is we can definitely diminish the risks to young people for their foolishness. And I think that's probably far more civilized than anticipating that we should sacrifice some young people to serve as a lesson to others, which seems to be uh, what people who object to pill testing are all about. I personally, as a medical professional, find that uh, incomprehensible and a little bit ghastly. And finally, in the spirit of that harm minimization, are there any things that, for example, a parent might be able to tell their teenager um, about drugs at music festivals that would help keep those teenagers safe? Well, I'm a parent. My kids aren't in that age group yet. But um, what I will be telling them is that I'd rather they didn't use drugs. And I'll be quite clear with them. But I'll accept the possibility that they might ignore me. They're already ignoring me and they're only in primary school. And so you've got to anticipate as a parent that your children will ignore your good advice. The reality is, I think, is you need to encourage a dialogue, a conversation. The relationship between parent and a child who might be using drugs is not dissimilar to what it should be between the state. The state should be able to have a dialogue, to have a conversation. At the moment, there is no conversation between young people who use drugs and the healthcare professionals who need to get in touch with them. And pill testing uh, crosses that divide. It permits that conversation. It also 
gives people at festivals the opportunity to uh, to bow out with street cred. So if they're a bit apprehensive or nervous about using their drugs, they can use the pill testing environment as an excuse not to. So for parents who might be listening, I'd be saying, keep talking. Don't be judgmental. You're allowed to have your opinion that you'd rather that they didn't use drugs. But if they are choosing to use drugs, you also therefore need to anticipate what you want to do about that. I think one of the most useful things is to say, no matter what happens, I'm always there for you. I can always pick you up. Um, you know, if you're feeling strange, just call me. I don't care how or why it is, your health comes first. And that is the very essence of harm minimization. Absolutely, David. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Well, it was a pleasure chatting. That was Bensian speaking with Dr. David Caldercott there. There are good resources online on how to reduce the risk of overdose. You can search DanceWise, that's W-I-Z-E, for drug information and safety tips. Right now, only the ACT and Queensland are trialling pill testing at music festivals. But Victorian Premier Jacinta Allen did hint this week that her government may be open to pill testing but she wasn't making any promises. She told the ABC on Tuesday, quote, what's important here is to consider the evidence and advice from experts. Yes, of course, but the evidence on this stuff has been quite clear for a while now. Pill testing makes overdoses less likely. Sniffer dogs make overdoses more likely. Governments can't stop people taking drugs at music festivals. It just will never work. But what they can do is help save lives by actually listening to the evidence at hand. And that is all for this edition of The Briefing. Tune in this afternoon from three for a chat about how magazines are making a comeback. And be sure to share your thoughts about today's episode with us on Instagram. Just search The Briefing. I'm Sasha Barbagat. Thanks for listening. Listener.